Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? (laughs) (laughs) And today we're talking about The Hateful Eight. This here is Daisy Domergue. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. $10,000. That money's mine, boys. Don't want to share it. I ain't gonna lose it. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman into Red Rock to hang. Now, is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? This is a snowy, cabin-based, American revisionist western ultra-violent thriller. Directed by Quentin Tarantino. The cast includes Mace Windu, Sexy Santa Claus, Amy Archer, Boyd Crowder, Carlos Galindo, Mr. Orange, Mr. Blonde, Old Man Karukin, uh, Edgar McGraw, Cora, Uma Thurman stunt double, uh, Jenko from 21 Jump Street, and Mr. Brown. I watched this movie on Netflix. Joey, how did you watch it? I also watched it on Netflix, but... We actually watched different versions. Right. I watched the extended cut, which I think is more aptly named the episodic cut. And we'll talk about the uh, differences between the two. But first, let's hear your synopsis, Joey. Okay. The Hateful Eight just so happens to be Quentin Tarantino's eighth movie. What are the chances? Wow. <laughs> this is the story of two bounty hunters played by Kurt Russell and Samuel Jackson who happened to meet on their way to an old inn while escaping from a deadly blizzard. Kurt Russell is transporting a chained up Jennifer Jason Lee and bringing her to a nearby town to be hanged. The inn they are traveling to is known as Minnie's Haberdashery and it is the only location for about 95% of this movie. Also at the inn are six other unsavory characters. For those at home, that's right, there are nine main characters. Each of our characters is suspicious of the others, but since they are going to be snowed in for a while, for for what might be uh, several days, they decide to talk and feel each other out. Even though they all have different backgrounds and experiences, they soon start focusing instead on the things they have in common, and the movie ends with all nine of our characters singing songs around a warm fire until the snow melts. Just kidding! This is a Quentin Tarantino movie! The only way this ends is with everyone dead. The characters all talk with one another and discover that they actually do have overlapping histories and reputations that precede them. It turns out none of them are really good guys or bad guys, and it's up to you to decide who to root for. Of course, your options narrow quickly. Samuel L. Jackson's character uh, goads old racist Bruce Stern into going for a gun and uses that as an excuse to kill the old man. Soon afterward, someone poisons the coffee, killing Kurt Russell and one other. Then it's revealed that there aren't nine people in the cabin, there are actually ten, because it turns out that Channing Tatum, who is Jennifer Jason Lee's brother, was hiding in the basement the whole time. Everyone shoots each other, but not everyone dies. As they lay around, painfully bleeding out, they discuss what to do and how exactly they will kill each other. The movie ends with Samuel Jackson and Walter Goggins hanging Jennifer Jason Lee in Kurt Russell's honor. The end. Very nice. Very nice. I, uh, 
I think that puts it concisely. Uh, and That's we- the goal? Yep. The goal is not to put out every plot point, even though we've done that before. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get started uh, with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about The Hateful Eight? I, I mean, it's pretty great, right? Uh, it's an interesting story, a very unique setting, fun and mostly memorable characters, long, lingering shots, and really great tension. Um, it's long, but it doesn't actually feel that long. And the dialogue really makes this movie stand out and makes it exactly, it brings it to that great level. What about you? Yeah, I totally agree. The flowery dialogue is everything you want in a Quentin Tarantino film. I think there's great cinematography and, you know, the creative choice of using like the extra widescreen camera, really creative story, loaded cast and, and just amazing acting from everybody. Shocking violence. And, you know, all these things kind of fit into this category of, like, bringing along this classic Tarantino feel. You know, this is his eighth movie, and there's some things we've come to expect from him, and he delivers on a lot of those uh, aspects. Now let's talk about cons. What did you not like about The Hateful Eight? Uh, it's kind of hard to say. Um, I, I, when I came away from this movie, I was trying to, trying to put my finger on exactly what it was that bothered me about it. And I think I kind of settled on the characters. Um, I just didn't connect with them that much. It really seems like a lot of them are kind of the same in which they, um, they're all trying to badass, uh, like out badass each other. The only, I feel like the only reason why you can't smell the testosterone in that cabin is because they all talk so fancy. Um, <laughs> but they're always like, uh, and I'll, get, I'll talk about this again later, but it's always like, oh, like you killed somebody? Uh, well, killing people is my fucking job so (laughs) you think you kill people well people try to kill me and then that's why i have to kill them exactly so there's i do twice there's twice as much killing in my playing around me yeah exactly yeah Um, what about you well i i mostly i'm with you it's it's hard to say because i feel like this movie is um pretty great but i i wish we could have known a little bit more about some of our other characters like coming away from this situation uh you know there's there's a few characters that i feel like we know a lot about but somewhere you, you don't it's more just told um and not shown to you specifically daisy because this movie kind of has is like surrounds her and uh what how her life is going to end essentially i wish we had seen or heard or or even just gotten more context around why she's such a bad person we're told she's a murderer but does that really make her different from anyone else in this cabin it's it would have been nice and i think it would have justified her her final death her, her her hanging in the end if we had had more context and and had a reason to hate her more than everybody else uh so i i I feel like the movie is trying to say that, yeah, you should hate her more than everybody else, but that we just have to believe them and not necessarily have a, a good reason. So that's our pros and our cons. Let's get into our overall section and really analyze this movie. And the first thing I want to talk about is the uh, format that they showed on Netflix because it was a bit of, I mean, I missed the drama when this movie was first put on Netflix, but apparently there was a bunch of outrage with people uh, not liking the format of the quote unquote extended cut. And I was actually pleasantly surprised by the extended cut. It's a little confusing because like I said before, it's not much of an extended cut as much as it is an episodic cut where they cut the movie into four episodes. Hmm. And the main difference from like the runtime is really the way that they set up 
these episodes because each episode begins with an opening credits and has a closing credits. So when you see that each part of it is like 50 minutes long, it's really shorter than that because uh, you can skip the intro and outro and just stick, like watch the actual content. It can be helpful if you're not watching it all in one like shot. Like I think they set it up just like any other se- series on Netflix where they have the recap at the beginning, which helps. Um, and I think that that makes it more consumable. Three hours is a long time to watch a movie. And, and you know, maybe not everybody's up for that. So if you are have a slightly shorter attention span or less time to commit all at once, uh, I, I think it's well curated for a multi-day viewing experience. You know, it's kind of a, uh, a feature or, or, you know, just a resource you can use. Uh, but... I think you should watch it all in one go, personally. As someone who's seen this movie multiple times, I think that's the way that you should actually go about it. It kind of reminds me of Kill Bill, which is another Tarantino movie. Is It's broken up into two parts, volume one and volume two, even though it's all one big story. When I watch Kill Bill, I prefer to watch both, but that's a just north of four hour viewing experience. So I understand wanting to break it up and I understand that same urge coming into uh, The Hateful Eight. And like I said, I think you should watch the whole thing in one go, but I, I don't think that Netflix setting this up was bad in any way. I don't know because this movie relies so much on that building of tension, right? Do you, I mean, I guess you watched all of it at once, right? Do you didn't, did you uh, did. take a break in the middle or did you like watch it one day and then come back to it another day or anything? I watched it all in one day, but I did take the like breaks as an opportunity. It's like, okay, now I'm going to go to the bathroom. Now I'm going to look at my phone and text people back. Now I'm going to, uh, you know, make lunch. So I did, I guess, take brief breaks in between each episode, but I did, you know, pretty much one viewing experience. Yeah, because it seems like, I mean, the, I think this movie works really well because of the tension that's brought up through it, right? As it goes through the movie, there's not a lot going on, but you're constant. You know that something, something's about to happen, and you know that there's a all these different pieces are kind of coming together to result in what you know is going to be the ending. So, um, to to break it up like that really feels like it's it it could dissuade some of that, right? It could remove some of that tension from the viewing experience. I think when you're doing something like a um, like a television show or something that you are intending to break up. Um, and who knows if that's how that works for a lot of these, like kind of uh, these series that Netflix does where they're kind of just one long story, but you know, spread out across several episodes. Um, are they intending to break it up or whatever? There's, there's, an, there's kind of a way you could edit it to bring you back into that tension, right? Where you kind of, not just a recap of what just happened, but you you kind of set the stage a little bit more and say, okay, here's where we are. Here's all our characters and everything. Remember, this is what's going on. And then you you, you spend a couple of minutes, you know, working that tension back up. Um, whereas this movie, although it, the whole thing is basically building up to that tension, by cutting it up like that, you kind of break that that chain a little bit and it's in a place that's not um, intended. Right. I see. I definitely see what you're saying. I felt like they chose good places to stop and start for the most part especially mm-hmm. because it felt it always felt like i couldn't stop there it was the type of thing where i was like oh i gotta watch another one which gotcha. is classic netflix but i think that what you're saying rings true uh it, it there's no you can't just put a uh 
previously on The Hateful Eight and have that match the potential for just solid writing, you know? So, uh, and, and, and like, and I, I still stand by what I said originally that you should watch it all in one go. But again, for somebody, I think that it makes this accessible for some percentage of the population that says three hours is way too long for me um especially if you're just a tarantino stan and and you want to share tarantino with your friends or or your family or people who are like oh we had to watch tarantino it's nice to have the option to be like well we only have to watch 50 minutes of it today you know we can watch another (laughs) yeah but then it's like then we have to do it tomorrow too you can take up my whole freaking week watching this movie (laughs) (laughs) but but it uh you know we can watch tarantino and then we can watch something else i don't know i just think it's an interesting thing to add uh because it uh it, it it kind of goes along with the bingeable or like easier to consume uh way that streaming is you know it, it's giving you that option i didn't have a problem with watching it the way i did um i felt like by just going straight to the next episode it didn't even feel like it was that different it just felt like watching the whole movie so there um, are actually yeah. so what's int- so i actually watched the regular version which is slightly shorter i think it's only two hours and 47 minutes, um, which is basically three hours, but it's not quite three hours. Right. Um, and I actually, I did take a break in the middle. I think I made dinner or something. I did like uh, kind of stop in the middle just because I was hungry and it was like eight o'clock. Um, and, uh, and also kind of important to mention is that in one theatrical version, which I'll get to later, there was an intermission actually. Right. Right. So um, the breakup of this is not totally out of the question. Um, so, and I, I don't know for sure, but it seems unlikely that they would have done this without Tarantino's permission as well. Yeah. 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 And I, I saw something about Tarantino responding to criticism for the Netflix arc and, and, or the Netflix format. And he had always, uh, he said it was like always my intention to break this movie up. So I don't, I don't think that it was really his, uh, I don't think he has any problems with it. Hmm. So, and it is definitely edited differently because correct me if I'm wrong, but the narration part happens right after the intermission, right? Where he says 15 minutes, like 15 minutes have passed or like a certain amount of time has passed. And here's what's happened. Like they, uh, it was right after Samuel Jackson shoots the racist guy. Uh, Um, I don't know. I know it's about two hours in. Okay. So uh, that sounds about right. But that part actually doesn't. Anyways, that part is still included in this, uh, even the way it's broken up. But anyways, that's enough about the Netflix uh, episodic cut. Uh, it was an interesting thing to add on to this movie that is already really interesting. Um, I'm usually impressed with cinematography in Tarantino films, and this movie is no exception. It had plenty of the trademark long cuts that we expect in tarantino films i was actually introduced to the concept of long cuts in tarantino films that's not to say i hadn't seen other movies with them but it was kind of like the thing that made me realize oh that's that's a thing uh and one example (laughs) is the opening credits where you linger on this wooden uh what do you call carving of of the christ right with snow all over him and uh it really lingers for a long time and then it's the horse carriage comes by and then the other long cut or another long cut rather is reading the uh, walter goggins reading the letter at the end where it kind of the camera is up close but then it slowly creeps away and then up the body of daisy domergu i you know i i love those kind of long cuts it's really impressive to see the actor like hold it together for that long Additionally, I love the use of camera angles that uh, especially 
the ones that served as kind of a red herring for where the ultimate twist would come from. Early in the movie, there's so many shots from above where there's kind of like the things that are lying on the rafters that come between you and the characters. And it's trying to hint that there's something up there, a secret (laughs) that's hiding just out of sight from our characters. But then the reveal happens and you find, it turns out that the secret has been beneath the floorboards the whole time. Uh, I thought that was uh, that was pretty good. And I think I, I only really realized that because I've seen this movie before, but it felt like really intentional to choose to be from above so much inside this cabin when the twist was going to come from below. Uh, I, I also loved the shots of beautiful Wyoming countryside, but which is actually Colorado because that's where this movie was filmed. But they say it's Wyoming in the movie, and uh, and then like the really detailed close-ups on our characters. Uh, you know, something like when they're in the horse carriage talking to each other, uh, it can you know it's a little bit more interesting when they get those super close-ups. Not to mention the fact that this movie was filmed on sixty-five millimeter film, which is extra wide it adds a very it's like a very visually stimulating cinematic experience although i felt like the cinematic aspect kind of was diminished or that widescreen effect was diminished watching at home but uh when i watched this in the theater it was really felt wide and uh, <laughs> you were a wide boy yeah, yeah. Well, i was like wow they can put two basketball courts on that <laughs> <laughs> yeah the um i think it's really interesting because uh, this was originally filmed using 65 millimeter and then projected onto 70 millimeter, which gives this movie a certain depth that is definitely missing when I'm watching it at home on my 42 inch mm-hmm. movie through the internet. Um, <laughs> but that, like, there's this detail and richness that I I remember I, I distinctly remember that when we went to see it, just like how much detail is on the screen when we went to see it in the theater. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so like trying to see this in IMAX or something would be amazing. Actually, I, I looked up a little bit about. Uh, 70 millimeter and it's like um it's like super detailed like it's a uh, uh, 35 millimeter is somewhere between like uh four and six k uh-huh. and um uh 70 millimeter is somewhere it's like close to like 12k resolution so like like it doesn't matter unless you're unless you have a film projector there's not a screen that exists right now that will <laughs> properly show the detail in this movie, which is fucking insane. That is crazy. <laughs> so I, it's um, a, yeah. I know that Dunkirk was filmed with the same type of film and yeah. I saw that in IMAX, which is really visually stimulating. Um, but yeah, I, I still feel like it has an impact on the way this movie looks, even when you're watching it at home, because they, I think Tarantino takes advantage of the wideness of his screen and, and focuses on showing you as much as he can in a lot of instances. A lot oh, yeah. of scenes in the haberdashery intentionally showed like an entire half of the cabin uh, with the characters who were actually doing stuff in the, in the foreground, but the other characters just existing in the background, kind of giving you the opportunity to like, because you're trying to figure out what's going on, who's doing what, and you can see them back they're pretty clearly yeah so i was going to make some comparisons to chess because there's a uh, there's a chessboard in there which is kind of like a motif of like oh like there's a, it's a chess game between these two sides or something which uh, i'll get into like that metaphor doesn't exactly work but one of the things that makes chess uh, interesting as a game is that it is a game of perfect information meaning that you can see 
everything all at once. There's nothing hidden from you. It's not like the, your your opponent has a, a deck of cards and you don't know what they have. Right. You know exactly what the layout of the board is at any moment. You just have to look. Um, and that's kind of true for Minnie's Haberdashery. There's nowhere to hide. You can see everyone at all times. And the wide-angle lens kind of gives you the opportunity to. But it also, like, you know, it, it makes the actors have to work that much harder because they're always on screen and they're always yeah. doing something. Even in the background, they have to be in character it, uh, within their own character that's in the movie. So, yeah, it's uh, that's pretty cool. I did like having, like, the reactions, too, of them. Even sometimes it's subtle, but I, I liked being able to see, like, when... Uh, Chris Mannix is in the foreground negotiating with uh, Daisy. You can see Samuel Jackson in the background holding his nuts and reacting like facially to everything that's going on. So, um, so yeah, that's another thing. And just to like kind of uh, you know top that off, like uh, great cinematography is something we come to expect from uh, Tarantino films, and I think this movie is no exception. Another trademark of Tarantino movie experiences is non-linear storylines which is something that's used in the big reveal of Channing Tatum being under the floor which I always thought was interesting I kind of I kind of wish they didn't credit him at the beginning of the movie where they say and Channing Tatum Mm. but if I'm being honest the first time I saw this movie I totally forgot that they said and Channing Tatum and I was blown away by yeah it was two and a half hours earlier yeah Um, but so while uh, the non-linear aspect in this film doesn't rival the disjointed nature of a movie like Pulp Fiction or Reservoir Dogs, it's still a bold choice that breathes new life into this film at a pinnacle moment. I love non-linear storylines because it transcends the way that we interpret time and being able to go backwards and forwards narratively is such a cool concept to me. So it's it's well used in this movie. Uh, you know, I I think well, I, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I think that more nonlinear aspects of this movie could have done a lot to help explain mm. some of our other characters. But again, that that's that's I think adding on to this movie is kind of a tall order <laughs> than it's already being so long. Um, but okay, so more classic Tarantino. Another classic Tarantino attribute that this movie possesses is the flowery dialogue. Both of us have already brought this up. Tarantino is one of the best at dialogue, and this movie is yet another example of what he's capable of writing. Conversations feel authentic enough to be lifted from real life, but are simultaneously elevated beyond what you see in real life. And that makes sense because this isn't real life. This is a movie. The dialogue is interesting, It's witty, and at times it's genuinely funny. For a movie that spends a lot of time with people just sitting around talking, this movie doesn't feel boring, and a lot of that is a result of the fantastic dialogue. Another classic Tarantino thing, he hits all the the Tarantino uh, high marks here. He's famous for shocking violence, and it's definitely present in this film whether it's daisy constantly taking a beating or everybody getting shot and bleeding everywhere or ob and john projectile vomiting blood tarantino yeah. finds new and creative ways to show ultra violence to his audience while some people find this violence to be deviant and abhorrent i appreciate it because it's usually earned by being well set up for instance, it was satisfying to see Bob get his head blown off after, after spending the majority of the movie watching uh, Major Warren try to suss out if Bob is lying. 
I loved that where he just go pow pow. I felt I said it felt such a release of tension when he <laughs> blasted him, and then he when he fell on the floor and shot his entire head off. Uh, and then another example is everyone in Minnie's haberdashery who was there in the morning getting slaughtered. Since it's used to explain the situation we are already in in the future, this is done especially well. When setting up the reveal of what Major Warren did to General Smithers' son, we had already heard multiple times that Southern boys went up the mountain in search of making a fortune by cutting off Major's head, and the general implied that that's what his son had set out to do when he came out to Wyoming. Uh, not to mention the whole being on opposite sides of the Civil War thing. <laughs> it, it was a repulsive act to witness, to be sure but it served as an exclamation point at the end of a well-written sentence. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it's true at all, that is. Ex right? Yes, it's another thing, too, is that it totally could be made up. Uh, it probably was made up, uh, but that just adds to the mythic of uh, Major Marquise Warren. Marquess Warren. Marquess yeah. Warren. So, this is ramping up to another classic Tarantino attribute of this movie, which is... The uh, the fact that he drops the the, the characters throughout this movie drop n bombs everywhere, and for a lot of people, this is a reason why they don't like Tarantino because it's gratuitous the use of the n word in this movie. Um, and while I mean I, I don't think it's my place to say whether or not that's permissible or good or okay. Um, I think it's realistic that characters in this historical time period would be openly racist. Uh, so I think that that's fitting. I think it would be bizarre if everyone was just like, you know, acting or treating Samuel L. Jackson as like an equal without being uh, at least racist to some degree. But um, that's just how I feel. It doesn't stop me from enjoying the movie, but I, it's not my place to say whether or not Tarantino should be doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely it's a stylistic choice. It's very similar to the violence, right, where it's something that you. <laughs> If you don't want to see people, if you didn't want people's heads blown off, then there wouldn't be heads blown off in this movie. If you didn't want to use the N-word, then you wouldn't use the N-word in this movie. So the fact that it's it's very much like a, oh, I think this adds a visceral quality to my movie. And I and and you might even say like the liberal use of it is kind of like a uh, I just like the word, which is a little more <laughs> touchy. I think. Right. Well, it's it's I don't know, because Tarantino is not. Uh, he's not exactly have a clean record with like putting stuff gratuitous amounts of stuff he likes in his movies. Like yes. another example is feet where Tarantino will go out of his way to put feet in his movies. And it's like, okay. So you could see this is almost a similar thing, but at the same time, a lot of the characters that are seen as the most racist are made to be, to look foolish as that. And you get uh, like almost a, uh, you know revenge revisionism with the way that uh tarantino treats racism in many ways in his movies by giving us the opportunity to see these outright racists murdered and killed in gruesome ways yeah. as kind of like a, a uh you know like i said like revenge uh on screen so yeah but I, there's also no good guys or bad guys in this movie you know and it's yeah. it's hard to say like whether the people that win are are really the good people at all or or what winning really means and like i don't know it's like a uh oh shoot what was i gonna say it, it's such um 
there's other ways of doing this, right? There's other ways of showing racism in this, and people do that all the time in other movies, right? And um, I think you can even see this in from certain of the characters as well, where they display a certain amount of racism, uh, but it's a little bit more coded, right? But we still understand what they mean. Right. Um, it's, you know, the fact that he's so intentional with his dialogue really kind of puts a lot of emphasis on using this taboo word, right? Right, definitely. And, and it makes it, I don't know, it's, it's uncomfortable, but it's also kind of the point in a way is to make you uncomfortable. I when think you, look, you put it really well by saying it adds that visceral quality uh, yeah. because there's plenty of stuff that happens in Tarantino films that I don't want to see, right? But that's kind of why I watch Tarantino films is for that shock and thrill. Sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, of uh, all of the, all of the actors and stuff they um they said that they didn't they didn't mind they understood the use of it they, under, they understood why he was doing it this way including Samuel Jackson and Bruce Stern so it's like yeah, I, I don't know it's it's really kind of up to your interpretation i guess there's also kind of an argument of like desensitization of like maybe there's too much emphasis on this word and maybe like more use of it in a in a historically like i'm going to put it this quotes historically accurate timeline cuz this right. is definitely not like this is definitely not a real story well it's um, revisionist right uh, so you could have revised that, that too where you're like yeah well in this revisionist version of history the right. n-word doesn't exist you know sure so, like I don't you know. have that option in a fictional story yeah exactly we also have the fi- option in a fictional story not to use yeah exactly exactly what you said not that's to use it at all so right yeah, yeah. that's what so, i'm saying if you're going to revise history so that major <laughs> warren exists you could also technically revise the n-word out of existence so like yes you, it is very much intentional to include this yeah anyway that's all that's all i think yeah i think we have to touch on that because it is one of the things about this but uh again like it's it's a tarantino thing like you see django unchained you're gonna outpace this movie for end bombs dropped or even in pulp fiction too because uh yeah quentin tarantino himself his own character says it so right anyways one last tarantino classic thing is that tarantino is notorious for including himself in his own films and he does this in a very subtle way in the hateful eight by making himself the narrator i didn't realize it was him it didn't sound like him to me but on imdb he's uncredited as the narrator oh really yeah uh now that i think back to it it does kind of sound like him um but yeah, I, it, I didn't well, pick up it on it when I heard it. It was something that crossed my mind because I was like, is this him? Because I was, it, it's almost like Stan Lee in Marvel movies where you're like, where is he? I know he's in here somewhere. <laughs> where is he hiding? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is he in the pictures? <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so we've got, uh, there's two major motifs that I noticed throughout this film. Uh, one is deal making and the other is like the concept of hanging. So there's so much we'll start with the deal making one there is so much negotiating deal making and alliance forming in this movie we only have a handful of characters but their relationships are fluid as they learn more about each other characters form alliances and then new characters are introduced so new alliances form and then characters die so those alliances no longer matter and new alliances must form as other alliances are revealed it's so much fun who would have thought racist-ass Chris Mannix would end up teaming up with Major Warren in the end? And I love them as a duo, by the way. <laughs> That's one of my favorite scenes, is where they have everybody lined up against the wall, and uh, you know Samuel Jackson is 
popping off talking about how, like all the stuff he's known this whole time and how he's like figuring out the whole situation and shooting John Ruth's body sp- like splashing blood all over Daisy and then Chris Mannix is like backing him up and being his hype man and also talking shit to Joe Gage who yes. like, doesn't have to hide his hatred for anymore <laughs> I think it's the ugliest one, which makes it you, Joe Gage. <laughs> he shines in the last half of this movie. He's so oh, yeah. good. I mean, the whole movie, he's great. But he really, when he he transitions from being just like the racist Southern guy to being kind of like the fun, I don't know, just like silly guy in the, in the most dramatic part of the movie. I, I really love Walter Goggins. But even this union between uh, Mannix and Warren isn't ironclad because up until the end chris flirts with the idea of switching sides and joining the jody domingue gang during the final standoff you know he's everybody's just trying to come out on top and figure out what's going to help them win uh and to come out ahead in this situation it's one of the major appeals of the hateful eight finding out who the characters are, what their motivations are, who I'm supposed to root for, who's going to survive. I think that's like probably the main appeal for me of this movie is like that premise. And the other motif is hanging. So this is, this is weaved throughout the whole movie. First, we're introduced to John Ruth, the hangman, who always brings his bounties in alive to watch mm. them hang, which is an, it makes him an interesting character. Then we meet major mark marquess warren who never brings his bounties in alive he always kills them in the easiest way and brings their corpses in to collect the bounty so we have kind of like the the opposite ends of the bounty spectrum here sure then we meet oswaldo mowbray or someone who's pretending to be oswaldo mowbray and he discusses his role in the execution process with his job being the hangman he tells us the difference between justice and frontier justice which we'll listen to a clip really quick. But ultimately, what's the real difference between the two? The real difference is me, the hangman. To me, it doesn't matter what you did. When I hang you, I'll get no satisfaction from your death. It's my job. I hang you in Red Rock. I move on to the next town. I hang someone else there. The man who pulls the lever that breaks your neck will be a dispassionate man. And that dispassion is the very essence of justice. For justice delivered without dispassion is always in danger of not being justice. The ever eloquent Tim Roth there. Putting on a fake British accent on top of his regular British accent. (laughs) And then also playing a guy who's playing a guy (laughs) who's pretending to be Oswaldo Mowbray, uh, which did they ever really explain why he had all that stuff? Why he knew so much about executions? I don't know. I mean, that seems like something you can make up on the spot, honestly. Well, he, <laughs> had, he had the business card, so he yeah, obviously so was assuming somebody else's killed, identity. Yeah, maybe he killed Osmo. Bro- or maybe that's just like part of his bit, is that he's like a master disguise or something. That's like one of his things. He's maybe, like, yeah, right? But he okay, pretends it sounds to be like, Oswaldo Mulberry. Yeah, right, but you know, it sounds like it wasn't really explained. Cards. No, Cause it, it Because it, it, that was one of the things where you feel like he has a really authentic... Uh, reason to be there because he has a card and he has uh, the 
whatever the the paper that says who's going to die that Mannix knows about. So he's able mm. to really authenticate his backstory, which is supposed to be misleading, obviously, but it kind of would be nice to know why or like how he was able to do that. It sounds like he killed the real Oswaldo Mowbray and just assumed his identity. I don't know. Maybe we don't need that to be explained, but... <laughs> He does such a convincing job, it's almost too convenient. But anyways, and that's not the point I'm trying to get here. I'm trying to yeah, stay... Yeah, well, he's more interesting as his fake character than he is as his real character. Definitely true. Um, but l- let me finish this point about hangings. Uh, one more part of like the hanging motif is the mantra that's put forth by John Ruth, the hangman. You really only need to hang mean bastards. But mean bastards, you need to hang. Which is such a fun line. Uh, <laughs> it is a fun line. And it's hard to disagree with, uh, and let, you know, if, if you're unless you're just completely against capital punishment. But the last, uh, and this leads up to the last scene, the final scene, where Mannix and Warren agree the shooting is too good for Daisy, and they hang her. I'll be honest, I don't know what I'm supposed to conclude from this, but hanging is definitely a dominant <laughs> idea in this film. <laughs> Okay, well, we, I mean, we can unpack this a little bit. I mean, the uh, what's interesting, I think, is that it's this idea of dispassionate justice, right? That you're supposed to be a dispassionate person who brings, who kills someone. And I think you can make the argument, and I think John Ruth would agree with this, that John Ruth is a dispassionate person. He doesn't really care about um, Daisy uh, Damargu. He doesn't really care about any of his bounties. You know, they're just people that he's going to kill or going to bring to be hanged, right? And they're they're just a way for him to get paid, part of his job. So he really doesn't like he doesn't hate Daisy any more than he hates anybody else. Um, and he can see, even though he like he's constantly beating up on her, he also shows her certain amounts of kindness, pouring her drinks, wiping stuff off her face. You know, they kind of work together to like put the door back together and stuff. They're they're like attached to the like at the wrist and so they kind of have to work together and so and you can see that he doesn't really feel that strongly one way or the other about her right he's just kind of a violent person in general which makes him um hit her more than you know would be a normally acceptable and normal conversation right and, um, but he constantly brings up these like that ten thousand dollars is practically in my pocket you know yes. like he's he's doing his job right exactly and, and exactly what it is and it's not because oh i'm gonna I think there may be something about, oh, the nobility of the profession, but there's nothing specific about Daisy that makes him um, care that she dies more than anybody else, right? Um, and so in that regard, he kind of agrees with the dispassion argument. But I, I, when you think about this, I don't really know if this really um, like holds that much water. I guess if you put it in, like if you take it right at face value, take it exactly what he says, justice delivered with dispassion is is the only form of real justice. But if you think about it, like in our own system, um, the only way that like justice gets served is when someone is passionate about serving out justice, right? If you were dis- truly dispassionate about whether justice was served or not, you would not care and then nothing would happen. But if you actually wanted something done, if you wanted to actually, you know, see somebody held accountable, there has to be a certain amount of passion in that, right? To, uh, to, deliver that and maybe that's um the judge is the dispassionate part of that or the jury is dispassionate because they don't care one way or the other they just want the truth uh, but there has to be a certain amount of passion involved in order for somebody to put up a bounty or to take someone to court um so 
uh, I don't know if this is like a, I don't know. To me, this sounds good, but I can't, yeah, I, I don't know if it holds water. It's the type of thing where it's like, he's so right. Like, the executioner is such an important, you know, keystone to the whole justice structure. But then I'm also like, is that even true? Like, I just feel like he's a smooth talker, and I like the way it sounds when he's talking. Yes. But it doesn't go beyond that for me. Like, it's I know, just, that's how I felt, too. It's like, it's like oh, he, like, he says it in the right tone, and he has kind of the right words, but it wasn't that convincing. Yeah. And, and like he's just so he just acts so slippery at this moment where he's like, "Ooh, like I'm so smart with my British accent kind of thing." You just don't trust him right away. You're like, "What is his deal? Is he just a weirdo, or is he like, or is he have some right. alternative motive?" You know. So like, um, and and I don't know about this. I mean, the frontier justice thing is certainly true. Like, there's a certain amount of like, "Oh, if you just go after revenge, then you're never gonna. It's never gonna end because revenge begets more revenge, obviously." Um, but like having that kind of bureaucracy involved where there's a hangman and people involved like a jury and a sheriff and stuff certainly adds a level of like comfort i guess to a society and makes it seem like oh okay this is not going to be like a witch hunt where we kill one guy and that leads to killing another guy wins to killing another guy right we kill this one guy and then we're, we're moving on with our lives well is that even true though because um who makes the wanted posters who makes who puts these rewards out you know yeah. it could be political enemies of the state and now we're having the like state sanctioned executions of opposition right like it, obviously that's getting way too deep for the point of this movie but uh i i just don't see anything concrete here like how does the like contrasting uh, John Ruth's process with Major Warren's process, what do we gain from that? I think it's yeah. cool. I liked the comparison. I think bounty hunters are cool in movies and having them be like, well, I'm the one who always brings him in alive. Well, I'm the one who never brings him in alive. Like, that's fun. <laughs> that's like, I like that for the movie. But what's the larger message behind this idea of hanging? I just, I think it's, it's more like a style thing. And it's like, well, I'm going to make sure that hanging is a constant thing in your mind throughout this movie. But it's not really saying anything larger about justice or uh you know capital punishment or anything larger it's just a motif you really only need to hang mean bastards but mean bastards you need to but hang. okay see this brings up a, an interesting element to this right because he's saying that you have to hang mean bastards right meaning that like shooting is too good for them and they say this at the end too we can't shoot daisy Domingue. she's too mean we have to hang her Meaning that like hanging is a worse way to die and that there are certain people that deserve to suffer as they die, which makes John Ruth not as dispassionate as he may claim to be, because it certainly seems like he wants to relish in Daisy's death, um, which he does say, too. He said, I'm going to be there when her next nest is like my favorite part of the whole thing right. is when is when they're dying. Um, and yeah, it's just like. And then at the end, right, where they have to hang her, they, they call it like a beautiful dance as she's like squirming and, and stuff, which is right. just, ugh. I mean, it's very sickening, um, the whole thing. I think that Tarantino has this kind of theme throughout all his movies of like a glorifying violence, of, like violence as a solution, violence as something good. Um, violence like, as a spectacle to be witnessed. Right. So, so like, I think that follows through and maybe that doesn't translate to the real world, um, but it's still like this. Um, there's still this element of hanging that's like worse, right? It's like, oh, like you have to hang people because that's like that's what they deserve. People right. have bounties on them; they deserve to be hanged. But like, like, like you said, 
where like the structure is all made up right the, who puts out the wanted posters who decides what this hanging is how do we know that they are dispassionate in their decisions about what's right or wrong right exactly. these people uh, can defer to the law and say oh i'm doing my job but like they're still murderers right marcus marcus warren is still a murderer even if he's that's his job to murder people right it's just that like he can get away with it because uh it's harder to kill him than it is to kill normal people because he's a little bit smarter and more resilient so it's just like uh, i don't know well because you I, also I, get the opposite effect from bounties that you send people to kill someone and they get killed as a result <laughs> of the killer killing yes. them you know so like because mark general or uh, Ma major marquise he has killed so many people who they, like first just self-defense so i don't know i i kind of feel like the more we talk about this the more it, it's almost like uh, just trying to bring up the absurdity of bounties and bounty hunters and hangings where it's like look how arbitrary this all is and how the the idea of justice gets completely muddied through this process yeah absolutely i think that i mean they talk about this too kind of off screen about whether what marcus does to um bruce stern's character the old the old general is is just or not right right did because like everyone saw what exactly what happened right and and nobody it was it's like fate nobody knew uh, everybody knew how it was going to end including old bruce stern <laughs> you know as soon as he puts that gun next to him right he knows that he's going to goad him into trying to shoot him and he's going to die like that's the that's what it, that's what's going to happen and everybody knew that everybody saw that nobody can say that marcus isn't trying to kill the old general, right? It's very clear that's what he's trying to do. And he's trying to give him an excuse to get out of that situation. And like uh, Mulberry, right, says, oh, if you kill this old man, then I'll hang you because you just murdered him in cold blood and I'm the hangman and I can do that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, the sheriff Red Rock is right there, right? He'll say, he says, I support that, that option because I like uh, killing black people. Um, so he sets up this elaborate situation so that he can get away with it, I guess. But like, it's only as good as his word, right? Everyone else in the cabinet can say, well, you know, he did that on purpose. <laughs> so, like, where is the line exactly? What is exactly what the what the deal is? Right. And, and if you like, take what's, into what's the... a good kill, uh, quote unquote, right? Sure. And it gets even more complicated when you bring in the larger context of the Civil War, where, uh, you know, General Smithers has these war crimes on his hands where he murdered all yeah. these Union soldiers instead of well, so does Marcus Warren where he killed a bunch of POWs as well right. right and his situation is even more complicated because he killed his own people as well as the opposing uh, sides people so yeah, yeah I, I guess maybe that's the uh, maybe that's what we're supposed to be drawing from this is that justice is not so black and white it's not so easy mm. to uh, to just to you know, discern when it's justice and when it's frontier justice. Right. I mean, it certainly seems like everything that happens in that cabin is frontier justice. You know, it's, yes. it's sort of a Lord of the Flies situation where they're isolated, right? And they can kind of get away with whatever they want. Um, right. And so, and all of our characters certainly have different motivations. And some of those motivations mean that some other characters have to die. I guarantee that if I lived in the Wyoming outback when i was you know right after the civil war i would get randomly murdered like that's just how oh, yeah. my life i used end. to think that about that when i was a little boy when i was a little kid i would think like there's no way I, if i was like alive 100 years ago that i'd be alive today i'm right. just too much of a wimp <laughs> <laughs> well, i would just be doing farming or something and some yeah. guy would roll through and murder me and that'd be the end right. of it <laughs> okay well 
uh, I want to kind of hit on some of the same things that you talked about. I want to kind of dive into the, some of the things that I didn't, one thing that I didn't really like about this movie. Um, there are three things that Tarantino does really, really well. And you've touched on all of these. He has great dialogue. He has memorable characters and he has incredible, spectacular violence. And this movie has all of these things. In fact, it's almost entirely these things. The cinematography, I agree, is really great. But think about what that camera is pointed at. It's a drab old cabin. There's pretty much only three colors in this movie. Brown, black, and snow white. <laughs> the visuals are sometimes really, really awesome. The landscape shots, uh, they have like, you know, have a lot of, and there's immense detail inside the cabin, right? All the stuff on the walls and on the shelves and stuff. Uh, and so it gives you plenty to look at. And if this movie, if I was watching on a bigger screen, there'd be even more to look at. But most of the time, uh, when you go outside, there's just a freaking blizzard on and there's nothing to see at all. So like, <laughs> it's either the cabin or just nothing, basically. So instead, this movie relies very heavily on its characters-focused uh, and character-driven story. Like any other Tarantino movie, there's a lot of build-up and history that you never really see. Although this movie takes place inside of a cabin, all of our characters lived rich and interesting lives before this movie even began. This just happens to be where they all ended up. And by ended up, I mean ended up. Uh, <laughs> you see eight out of ten people um, that are in the cabin die. And the five closest to Minnie and her haberdashery also die in the kind of flashback that happens uh, late late in the movie. Um, and although you don't see Samuel Jackson or Walter Goggins die, uh, it's very heavily implied that they will, um, and neither is in very good shape by the end. Which leaves me, the viewer, with kind of a weird feeling. I don't want to mistake uncomfortableness, uncomfortableness with un or uneasiness with distaste. I think it would be unfair to say that the movie doesn't didn't make me feel good therefore it's a bad movie it makes me feel if it didn't make me feel bad it kind of made me feel like oh um okay i guess this is fine uh, uh, i'm gonna go through the characters we haven't really we haven't touched on all the characters yet so once you okay. get to minnie's haberdashery there are nine people in the story nine people in the cabin so let's name them off there is marcus uh major marcus warren played by samuel jackson john ruth the hangman um there's daisy Domergu, ob the driver uh, John Ruth's driver, uh, Chris Mannix, who is the new sheriff of Red Rock, um, who is traveling with them, Oswaldo Mulberry, played by Tim Roth. Um, he claims to be the hangman, but his real name is Pete Hickox. Um, there's Bob the Mexican. English Pete Hill, uh, Hickox is right, his right, right, gang sorry. name. Yeah, that's, I guess that's important because the next guy is Bob the Mexican, also known as Marco the Mexican. Uh, there's Joe Gage, played by Michael Madsen, who's a writer, uh, but his real like criminal name is Grouch Douglas, which is a great like <laughs> outlaw name. Uh, General during, during the winter months, he becomes Grinch Douglas. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. There's also General Sanford Sandy. Don't give a damn Smithers or General General Sa General Colonel Sanders, as I keep calling him. <laughs> and, and then there's Jody Domingue, who is hiding in the basement, played by Channing Tatum. So for an ensemble cast, each does get a fair amount of play. Each has a role to play, and they're and each is different. Um, but they aren't different enough to matter. If you asked me last week bef before I rewatched this movie to name the characters from this movie, I would have remembered John Ruth the Hangman, uh, Marcus Warren, and Daisy, and then maybe Tim Roth's br weird British accent. But the rest kind of fade into the background. They aren't different enough. Bob the Mexican, Michael Madsen, and Tim Roth, the fake handman, are all there for the same reason. They're all part of the Domingue gang. 
uh, they kind of blend into one thing. Even Joe Gage is like the is so uninteresting in this whole movie, right? They keep trying to rope him back into the story, and like, oh, he poisoned the coffee. It was like they could have easily written him out. It's like Michael Madsen's like, hey, Quentin, I, you know, I kind of run out of money. Can you put me in your movie? <laughs> yeah, and like his whole point, I felt like he was like the weak link in the Domingo yeah. gang, where they were like, oh man, he, he could blow our cover just by being bad at. Like acting, (laughs) not not to say Michael Madsen because I think Michael Madsen is a great actor, but the character he plays is like his thing is that he's gonna come up with some bullshit story that John Ruth is gonna see right through and blow their cover, and he almost does. Yeah, he's not very no, he's he's just not very interesting at all. Um, The rest of the characters in the story, besides those the the Domingo gang, um, are pretty are more dynamic, except for maybe one, which is Ob. Um, they all have kind of the same thing in common. They are all trying to be the most badass one there. Oh, you kill people? Well, I've killed a lot more people than you. Oh yeah? Well, killing people is my job. Okay, then I'm going to kill someone right now, just in front of all of you, just to prove that I can kill more people than you. Uh, I mean, I'm being, I'm being facetious, but like, that's exactly what they're doing. It's all, it's like a dick measuring contest for how many people they can kill. I mean, imagine how different this movie would have been if Minnie had been there the whole time alive in the cabin right she's kind of a mediator and like the things that she cares about are very different than the things the other people in the in the story care about she cares about all of them getting along about them not destroying her haberdashery or you know? wearing hats yes exactly or there being no mexicans you know <laughs> right. like, those are like that that kind of element brings in makes many a more interesting character and it puts her at direct cross purposes with many of our characters in the story and it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that she wants them to all die right whereas all the other characters are like okay well i want this and you want that therefore one of us has to die that's like the the end result of all of this so uh, anyone who wasn't a wallflower or someone who wasn't a hardened killer as a character in this story right would have been interesting right there's there's so many different elements of there's so many different types of people right and you have an option to choose eight or more, I guess, because who knows why this movie is called The Hateful Eight when there's freaking ten people in the cabin well, the whole time. Okay, well, hold on. Who because... are you not counting? Is it OB not The Hateful One, I guess? Yes, there's there's OB and uh, Jody Domingue or uh, Channing Tatum. They don't count. Okay. Uh, and here's the thing. I don't know why OB doesn't count. <laughs> he's like he's like the bonus character because it's like he's the character who gets the and introducing OB like after yeah. the after the cast all gets introduced. I don't know why he doesn't count. Um well he's not that, hateful, I guess, right? I guess you could qualify it that way. Actually, that is probably why. It's because he as a character is not like the others because he's just a hardworking guy. He's just yeah. a normal, he's not a killer. He's totally fair. He's willing to deal and negotiate. All he's there is to earn his paycheck. Um, he's not there to be cruel or to kill anybody. And um, so I guess maybe that's what makes him not hateful. So I think Yawn. that is probably why. I mean, come on, like make him more interesting or something. I mean, like well, I liked him people. as a victim of random violence because yes. he was the one person I felt bad for when he's, I mean, I felt bad for uh, Kurt Russell also when he was barfing up his blood, but I, I felt bad for him in the sense where it's like he didn't do anything that yeah. warranted getting, you know, wrapped up in this. But he's also not like explicitly a good person either, right? He's just explicitly not a bad person, whereas right. everybody else in this movie is is pretty much a bad person. So. You like you don't have a lot of choices, I guess. Well, you have a lot of choices, but you have to compromise what your values and morals are going into this movie about who you're going to root for. Um, 
Right. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, I think that the fact that all of them are so, they're all of them are so hateful, I guess, but hateful in like a similar way makes the movie less interesting because you're, because you're not showing all these different dynamics to it. Right. You don't have somebody in there who's like a troll necessarily besides maybe Oswaldo, I guess. No, like no you're, but you're so right. I think that in the beginning, the promise or of the premise is that we could have eight different motivations here. We could have eight separate parties all acting in their own stories that all intersect at this one point, sort which of like it a, appears to be at when right. they first enter in. And you could say that, uh, you know, veering off of that path is effective storytelling where it's like the reveal is that these people are teaming up but uh, even if you have the reveal that some of them are already teamed up for some central plot i think it would be more interesting to have more peripheral characters who are doing their own thing and are independent actors in this as opposed to what it ends up being which is more or less a uh, you know one side versus the other Exactly. I mean, you, you can think of this movie like maybe if it was written kind of like vantage point, you know, you know what I'm talking about? There's movies where it's like there's a bunch of characters and the same story told over and over again from different perspectives. And then like halfway through the movie, you they all meet and interact with each other and then they all kind of go their separate yes. ways, right? And you could have done more nonlinear stuff with that uh, right. and, and tell it, you know, reveal information by going back or showing before stuff like that. Yeah. But that would make it a totally different movie, right? I and agree. Like, and but i just think that like if you're gonna if your promise is like oh we have all these characters and it's so interesting you have to make it more interesting i think or, or at least more different um so but but there are moments in here that i really like from some of our characters ultimately like you're not supposed to root for anyone they're all problematic they all have all done unforgivable things and i don't necessarily think that's the problem the, the best character moments for me are when they express something real um, this moment with, between Kurt Russell and Samuel Jackson, between John Ruth and Marcus Warren, after uh, Marcus Warren reveals that the letter he has from Abraham Lincoln is fake. Um, he says this. Where well, I guess it's true what they say about you people. Can't trust a fucking word comes out of your mouth. What's the matter, John Ruth? I hurt your feelings. As a matter of fact... And I mean, this is kind of the only point of racism that you see from John Ruth, right? And he doesn't even say the N-word here. Um, he And at the same time, he's um, you can see the portrayal. This is such a great performance from Kurt Russell throughout this movie. But the, you can see the like the amount of disappointment and betrayal and just hurt he has in that moment, right? And he, he's lashing out in this racist way, which is kind of uncharacteristic to him. And And... The, that that colors John Ruth the Hangman as someone who's hopeful and optimistic, which is, if you think about it, kind of reinforces the other actions he has. Right? He kind of values human life, even if he is a, a bounty hunter. Right? Um, he takes a lot of pride in the fact that he does things the hard way because he thinks that's the noble way to do it. And it, it, this is not a moment where he's bragging about how many guys he's hanged. It's not a moment where he's punching Daisy in the face. But this is the moment I felt the most for him, and I related to him. He put his faith in someone, and that person lied. Here's another moment. I'll, I, this is the moment that really stood out to me. I'll never forget the smile that comes over Jody Domingue's face as he turns to see his sister moments before his head is blown off. It's a human moment, right? He, it's, this br it's so brief, and the, but the movie lingers on it. It's played in slow motion, 
and it lingers in my mind as well because in that moment he stops being the antagonist the nut shooter right and he starts being someone who's happy to see someone they love and then tragically dies which is like which is funny but also like that that smile that he that comes over his face is so genuine or, or you just feel for it and you're like oh man the connection between these two characters i can see that in this tiny moment between these two people and like those moments they're far and few between there's few and far between there's there's a few of them these are two that really stood out to me um but every time they happen they really give more depth to our characters and that's really what i feel like is missing from this movie um so, and it really makes stuff stand out. It makes them different. It makes them interesting. Uh, but ultimately, there aren't enough of them. And so when the movie ends, I sort of feel weird. Like, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be satisfied or not. And I think that is the feeling that Tarantino is going for, honestly. But for a movie that relies so heavily on its characters, and the, fa the fact that I could only relate to them for brief moments left me feeling more disconnected from the ending and maybe not care who lived or who died. And that's why, like, although I like the poetic nature of hanging D Daisy to honor John Ruth, it didn't really sit right. First, did either of these characters really care that much about John Ruth? Even Marcus didn't really know him. Mannix literally just met him. And it's not like they got along super well, e any of them. So why does carrying through, carrying through that work for, like, uh, work for any reason other than symmetry in the plot? You know well, what I mean? Uh, yes, I, I, I do know what you mean. I feel like... Marcus does have a certain respect for John Ruth. He definitely yeah. shows that in the beginning. And um, I don't know, like maybe it's it's just kind of the mythic of John Ruth, like just even it, just from the perspective of trying to make the character to elevate him that much more. Because when the hangman catches you, you gonna hang, you know, like that is, I don't know. Again, it goes with that hanging motif. Where when John Ruth, the yeah. hangman catches you. You don't have no bullet in the back. Mm -mm. When the hangman catches you, you hang. Yeah, exactly. So I get why they do it from that perspective for the, the hanging motif. Um, and like I said, to add to the mythic of John Ruth. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely get that, right? And I definitely feel that. It's like, oh, wow, like John Ruth like stands large even when he's dead in his cabin. But he's he's largely not there for after between the time he dies and this moment you know he's forgotten for the most of it they do mention him a couple of times they do shoot him a couple of times even though he's already cut dead. his arm off <laughs> <laughs> yeah cut his arm off so but like he's not um like this it, it's brought in and it really just feel like okay we gotta we gotta make this rhyme somehow so let's force it to rhyme right right you I know see. at least that's the way that i i feel i i do see what you're saying though so yeah i feel like there's a lot to like about this movie um it's differently it's definitely different um uh, and it is interesting um okay well, what was the other thing so going back to when daisy dies at the end right yeah so many have already died daisy this whole movie is living on borrowed time uh mannix doesn't even believe uh that anyone was coming to save her and she is kind of awful but no more awful than anyone else i mean not really why would killing her bring catharsis to marcus and mannix at this point it doesn't matter. And it comes across as bloodthirsty. And maybe they are bloodthirsty, uh, but that's a very uncomfortable taste leaving my mouth as the credits roll. Um, you know, it's like, there could be this moment of like, okay, well, I guess we, like, we came here for a purpose and it, it turned out pretty bad, actually. Like, we're in pretty bad shape. Like, the situation has changed. You know, are we really that committed to 
what we claim is John Ruth's justice? Or are we, you know, just going to let this ride? You know, it doesn't matter if Daisy gets out or not, because ultimately, like, we're dead here. So, yeah, you know, it, like it's I, like, it, like I, that moment of fruit, like, that's the thing, though, right? It's like for a Tarantino movie, it has to end with this bloodthirsty ending. But the more subversive thing is to have someone survive. You know what I mean? Someone get out. I guess from a Tarantino context, that would be more subversive. But I, I kind of look at the end of Hateful Eight in the larger scope of movies entirely. Sure. And the existence of a meaningless ending, like an intentionally meaningless ending, gives value to other meaningful endings because there's always the chance that it could be meaningless. Like having your characters go through things and have it not work out and everyone loses, I, I guess for lack of a better word, is subversive. And it's right. it gives you the opportunity when you see something work out to be like, actually, there was a chance this wouldn't work out. You know, you always assume there's going to be a happy ending. You always assume that the conflict is going to be resolved at the end. And having Tarantino say, yeah, actually, that doesn't always happen, I think adds value to just the movie going experience in general because it breaks that uh, rule that everything has to be resolved and there has to be a meaning in the end. Sometimes you're just witnessing a sequence of events. Um, sure. But at the same time, a lot of times the reason why you have to have a meaningful ending is so that it's satisfying because I, I came came away with a similar feeling of like, okay, now what? Like you can just watch these guys die. Why'd they even hang her like that? They could have, you know, it just, it just yeah. had to end. There was a, there was a video I watched about this movie that talked about fate and how this movie is kind of, is about fate. Um, and that's why Daisy hangs at the end, just because she's fated to die. But it's, I mean, I think what's more interesting from that perspective is to kind of subvert that, right? It's like, she was destined to hang. If it wasn't for this blizzard, she would have hanged in Red Rock, right? It was, it's kind of implied that they would have made it all the way to town if the, if the blizzard hadn't come there. Um, so the fact that she does hang kind of like reinforces this like inevitability of fate. Of like everyone who walked into that cabin was going to die, and that was the end of it. There's just no way that these people could ever survive in the same in the same uh, room as each other. Um, but if she survived, right, that would be a subvert. That would be subversive in that she escapes her fate. And what does that say about fate in general? Is it really as promised as it seems to be? Because throughout the whole movie, it's promised that she's going to hang, and then when she if she doesn't hang, then what does that leave you with? Does that mean that like people can change their fate? Does that mean that circumstances can alter your destiny? Apparently not, but that's okay. Right. But still that, that is a intriguing question. And I think it would have been an interesting like end to the movie. If the most hated character is the one and you and that's just, you know, maybe not necessarily accurate, sure. but just a central villain ends up escaping. That would have been even probably more subversive. Uh, but again, I think that's a different movie. Yeah. Okay, so I got a couple other things I wanted to talk about. Um, one of the things was there's a lot of attention given to solving technical problems in this in this movie. Ob is laying on the floor uh, wearing the bear skin, and he just says, "I need to get warm. I need to get warm." And that's literally it. like that's like it doesn't go any deeper than that, right? He's not like saying, "I need to get warm because of the cold of revenge that's about to be," you know, <laughs> the dish it's like served cold. Yeah. Yes. No. It's like no. I just literally need to be warm because it's freaking cold outside. Um, there's that whole thing where they're putting the stakes in the ground from the stables to the outhouse. Uh, there's that whole thing where John Ruth is making coffee and he's like, where are the coffee beans? Where's the well water? He's like being directed around the cabin. 
And that's like five minutes of the movie is just well, him making coffee. Well, right. But that I, I'm not sure if this is different because of the extended cut, but that's revealed later to be important because uh, right. that, that was when he was originally going to get shot because they had this whole thing where Joe Gage was like, I'm just going to shoot him as soon as he comes in here. And then mm. Jody is like, you can do that, but make sure it's the right decision. We've only got one shot at this. And then Joe Gage is sitting there with the gun under the table. Was this only in the extended cut? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. This is different because they do that scene again, and Joe Gage has his gun underneath the table. So, like, the table he's sitting at writing, he's got his gun, and uh, the what's his name? Uh, the English Pete is following them around, and he's trying to signal to Daisy that they're going to shoot uh, John mm. Ruth. And uh, so when he does that and like she realizes what's about to happen, she goes like, we're traveling with the new sheriff of Red Rock. Right. And, uh, and then you can tell your uh, friend to eat bananas or whatever the racist comment she throws in there. Um, yeah. That was all to throw Joe Gage or not to throw him off, but to stop Joe Gage from blasting uh, John Ruth, because that would have uh, put them in a situation where it's them against uh, Samuel Jackson and Chris Mannix. So I see. That did end up having some purpose, but maybe not in the theatrical cut. Yeah, I kind of I missed that. I think that's subtle in there. I think there is I think there is something there in the background, but I wasn't paying that close attention, I guess. Um, but anyway, there, there's a lot of moments in here, like what about the doors being the door having yes. maybe two nails and stuff like or two boards. There's a lot of time spent solving technical problems, right? It's like, okay, how we're in this situation. What is a reasonable thing that has to happen, kind of thing? Put the um, horses and, away, stake, yeah, thing, stake out, yeah. like the all line stuff that to like you don't bathroom. necessarily have to show, right? Right. But um, but I think what this does is it kind of first of all it builds up the world that they're in. It, it makes it more real, but it also builds up that tension of like, okay, well they're just doing normal things, and so who knows what's going to happen? And any normal any normal activity could be interrupted by something more drastic. Right. And I don't think there's, there's not like jump scares in this movie, but there's a lot of moments where it's like, okay, well you just don't really know what's going to happen next because everything's kind of building towards something, but it's not exactly clear what it's building to. Um, so it's, it's just interesting because normally I think you want to be more economical with a script like this, where you're trying to do as much as you can with everything, every moment you have, but a lot of moments just feel like they're, just there just to, to kind of throw you off to be like okay well this is how they shut the door <laughs> it's like okay i guess we needed to see that <laughs> right so, and i'm trying to remember exactly what happens but a lot of times where mundane things are happening in the foreground there's potentially important things happening in the background yeah, yeah. like for instance one of my favorite sequences is like the tension that builds leading up to the poisoning where uh uh, not Jody, uh, Daisy is playing the guitar and, and watching the yeah yeah and yeah. you know that the coffee's poisoned but they're kind of taking their time like ob goes right ahead and drinks it but you're like there's no way they're gonna let john ruth go out like this and then he does um but i, I think that's maybe a little bit different than every single time that they're nailing the door shut because there's plenty of times where that's just all that's happening it's kind of like boring because it's happening again <laughs> yeah exactly um, another thing was the Lincoln letter. Um, okay, so I wanted. What do you think? What is this? What is this? What is the deal with the Lincoln letter? So I guess For, we should talk about what it is. It, yeah. it is a letter that Marcus Warren carries around with him that says it's from uh, Abraham Lincoln as a proof of their friendship or a correspondence during the war, and he uses it as a prop to uh, disarm white folks, in his own words, but also to. Um, uh to get what he wants basically and to kind of give himself a little bit of credibility 
it's questionable whether it's real or not. Um, he says it's not real, but who knows? That's interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that, where he would say that it's fake even though it is real because it does reach a level of absurdity where even if it is real, who could you get people to... How could you convince people of that? But I... For me, I think it's just a commentary on being black in America, where right. um, it, you are automatically discredited, you're automatically seen as lesser just because of the color of your skin, but something just as absurd and ridiculous can be used to reverse the effect. By faking a letter from the president, suddenly stupid racists will uh, treat you like a respectable person because they have this other arbitrary thing that they deem as valuable that suddenly redefines your essence, your value as a human being uh he's one of the good ones exactly yeah. exactly so that that's what i saw it as was as marcus pl just playing the hand he was dealt and trying to overcome being black in america yeah so what does it mean at the end when Mannix is reading it right yeah they're, they're sharing it with each other and he's like and he doesn't he's not like laughing at it right He's like, he's kind of in one, in awe or in wonder. He's, he reads it in a similar way to the way John Ruth reads it when he, uh, when Marcus shows it to him at the beginning of the movie. So right. it's like, what exactly, what, what does that mean then? Is that like Mannix coming around or, I, I or what? I don't know. I, I think that Mannix, it's, it's, you know, he shows a surprising amount of, uh, uh, He's, he's pretty dynamic yeah he kind of grows in a sense of like he comes in as the son of like this very racist marauder and he's able to uh you know m form an alliance with a um black northerner so you know that's but again i don't i feel like that's more circumstantial and less of a like personal development thing where he's like it's more advantageous for me to team up with the major than it is for me to try to deal with these people alone so I, I don't know if they're if they are trying to use it as some sort of conclusion to Mannix's arc to go from racist to non-racist. I think it's pretty it's kind of a stretch. I, I yeah, well, it's just yeah. I think what that does is it shows just how fragile that that system of belief is. Right. Because when it comes down to it, like it becomes, OK, well, how do I survive in this situation? And, right. and it's very clear that somebody's trying to kill me and doesn't care if I die. So therefore. Um, you know, I'm going to team up with a guy who trusts me at least a little bit more. It, 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 you're exactly right. It's circumstantial. But it's also like, you know, I'm racist, but to a point where, like, I don't want to die because of it. <laughs> you yeah, know what I mean? Definitely. Which is like, which is like, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing. I don't even know if that's realistic or not. But it's still like, it's still something. And it gives him, it makes him more interesting as a character. And I don't really know what to makes different from the general. Because the yeah. general was fully willing to accept death as a consequence of his racism and, you know, revenge for his son, but definitely racism versus Mannix, who is more, you know, pliable with his beliefs on race when it comes to the, the current circumstances. Yes, exactly. I don't really know what to take away from that, from his reading at the Lincoln letter at the end. The only thing I can think of is like they're, he's looking for some symbol of hope or something. And why, by them enacting what they see as dispassionate justice by killing Daisy at the end, maybe they are hinting at like a, a uh, better world or something. But there is certainly a, um, I mean, the contents of the letter also hint at like, oh, like we should be able to work together or like we should, we should be able to see past these superficial dis distances, like di uh, differences like race. And in that moment they do, right? Because they're able to overcome uh, that difference in order to work together to kill Daisy, uh, which is like, again, like 
is that really what we want? Like, it's like, oh, we want to work together to kill people better. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess working together is, is a good thing in any case, but like, uh, in this situation, I don't know if your outcome is exactly what you want either. So, right now I felt like it was, I don't know, effective callback to something we had heard repeatedly throughout this movie, kind of like bringing back hanging again. But, um, I don't feel like the, like the, uh, commentary or social commentary, uh, is as salient in the end as it is as during the part that you played where, uh, John Ruth has to deal with the fact that it's a lie. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of, I, I'm, I'm kind of felt, I, I feel neutral about its use in the end, honestly. Yeah. It's another thing that didn't really sit right with me. You know, it's not like I, that gave me that punch at the end. like, Oh wow. Like I just watched a masterpiece. It was just like, right. Yeah. What? what? Kind of felt uneasy. Um, okay. Last thing I wanted to mention before we move on is uh, similarities to chess. So, first of all, you know, I mentioned chess is a perfect information. Um, there's also this, uh, black and white dichotomy between chess right and that's certainly an element of this movie is race um and and even just opposing sides right north versus south uh it's very obvious who's in the right and who's in the wrong depending on which side you're on and um and all of that but what's what's not true about chess is that uh there are um there's kind of a, a gray area about who your characters are and the fact that your characters can switch sides does is certainly not something that happens in chess. So like it's very clear on a chess board, which pieces are yours, which pieces are not. But in throughout this movie, it changes to see like who is who exactly and who is on whose side, right? Mulberry seems like a kind of new, a very neutral party throughout. He seems like the kind of person that uh, doesn't really care uh, one side or the other he even proposes dividing the cabinet in half uh to better mediate the situation but it turns out that he's actually you know one of the quote-unquote bad guys part of the domingue gang so he's clearly one of the antagonists so it's like a uh um so it's not clear exactly who is who which kind of breaks down this this uh um this idea one of the other things is the idea of perfect information of like like lines of sight so you can see everybody that's in the in the in the uh in the cabin at all times, but it's also not clear what they're thinking, right? right? And again, this kind of goes back to that same idea of like, okay, well, on the chessboard, you can see everything that's on there and you can put yourself in your opponent's shoes and act like, okay, ask, what would I do in their situation? But in this situation, even though you can see where everyone is and see everything that they're doing, you don't really know what they're thinking, um, which is sort of true about a chess game, but you also don't know what cards they hold, what guns they're hiding or anything like that. So again, it's like, I don't know if that metaphor works that well. One other thing, and you know, I'm not uh, Daniel Narodisky, uh, Narodisky, who is a grandmaster at chess or anything. But I, I like chess. I like to play chess. One of the elements of chess that I see come up in a lot of games I play is this idea of cascading violence, where you spend like probably the first, you know, one third of the game not taking any pieces. You're just moving everything in place, setting up all these traps, setting up little protection areas, right? If this guy, if my opponent takes this piece, then I can take him with this piece. If he takes this piece, I can take him with this piece or I can, whatever, right? Um, and that's certainly what happens in this movie. As soon as the, the moment between the beginning of the movie and the first person who dies is a lot longer than the moment between the second, the first shooting and the second shooting. And then that's a lot longer than the second shooting to the third shooting. It just gets faster and faster as the movie goes on. There is a little bit of a break near the end where they kind of hash things out, but ultimately it's like, um, 
it's kind of like a chess game in that like there's like carnage in the yeah. in the second third of the game where it's just like oh my god like everyone's killing each other and just like and then there's nothing left on the board except for a couple pieces which are carefully avoiding each other um so i don't you know i don't know if that's really a chess thing or not but i certainly yeah, felt I like see that the was parallel kind of for sure yeah. yeah yeah anyway um so there you go <laughs> nice okay well are we ready to move on to our easter eggs we're ready to move on all right, lay lay it on me. So uh, you may have noticed that some of our some of our actors uh, seem to be breathing like kind of foggy, whatever. You could see their breath in the movie. There's yeah. a breathing foggy. There's a a moment where Marcus Warren is uh, drinking some coffee and smoke billows out from under his hat. It actually was uh, filmed on a refrigerated set. Um, the, the temperature was actually like 30 degrees uh, and kept there uh, throughout like most of the shots in this movie in order wow. to uh, actually make our actors feel colder and to actually act that way. And so the, the way that they're bundled up and everything, uh, that was definitely to protect themselves from the actual extreme temperatures that they put them in for, to make it uh, more realistic in the movie. So cool. Pretty cool. Um, the next thing I want to talk about was uh, the, uh, the kind of different versions, the 70 millimeter. So, as of 2015, most theaters worldwide had their film projectors replaced with digital projectors as traditional film stock was no longer in favor. As a fan and supporter of celluloid, what writer and director Quentin Tarantino aggressively fought with distributors for the film to be shown in its ultra, original Ultra Panavision 70 presentation, which is the 70 millimeter. As a result, 50 theaters internationally were retrofitted with anamorphic lens 70 millimeter analog film projectors to display the film as he intended it to be seen it was released on december 25th 2015 as a roadshow roadshow presentation in 70 millimeter analog film format theaters exclusively before being released in digital theaters on december 30th 2015 and uh, this is this is from imdb but I'm, there's another element to this too which is that the film 70 millimeter roadshow version is a heavyweight in more ways than one the analog film is spooled on 20 reels with a combined running time of three hours and seven minutes and weighs in at over 250 pounds freaking ridiculous wow um so yeah it's i mean this is a a heavy movie and that's the type actually, of thing you can do after you've made you know yeah. seven classics uh oh, man. to proceed this you can be like yeah i'm gonna do something extra like this <laughs> yeah i mean it cost them an extra like two to three million dollars i think to do this which is like like i guess if you're the weinstein company you can just afford or you can just or if you're quentin tarantino you can just be like i want to do this and they're like um <sighs> I guess you. I guess we have to. <laughs> okay, right. there's nothing we can do about it. We, yeah. If you want to do it, we have to do it, even if it costs us two million dollars. Um, but there's actually like a couple different versions of this movie. There's the version that you watched, which is the um, quote unquote extended or episodic version. Then there's the the, the theatrical version, which is the one I watched. Um, and then there's the the roadshow version, which also has uh, slightly different things. It's closer to the extended version, I believe, but there's like an official intermission. And I think there are a couple of other different, like subtle differences. I read an article from The Guardian about the differences between them. And there was actually a Reddit thread that kind of laid out different things that people noticed for people who watched the movie both ways. Um, and there really isn't that much of a difference. There's that there's a scene that you mentioned uh, where they say that you're gonna, they're, we're going to kill him as soon as he comes in. And yeah. there's that scene where... Um, uh bob finds has the the plucked chicken 
Um, yes. John Ruth um, confronts him with that. That's not in the regular in the theatrical version either. Um, but for the most part, there's really no change. There's just more lingering, uh, slightly longer shots and stuff. And, slightly, and things are cut up a little bit differently. There's parts that are interspaced that are kind of put in different order. Um, yes. But otherwise, it's uh, basically exactly the same movie. Well, what, that's actually something I should have mentioned earlier when I was talking about the episodic nature. But I wouldn't hate to see a version of The Hateful Eight that is like 10 hours long. And it, and it's um done in one hour in real time, <laughs> not uh, or maybe it's only eight episodes long. And the hateful eight actually represents the eight hours. <laughs> but uh, but no, what I'm saying is, if they had decided to make this a Netflix miniseries, I think it would work as well. Uh, um, and and you could spend even more time lingering and getting a better understanding of your characters. Um, I I think that I think that's easy to imagine after you watch an episodic version of the film. But I also think that it would solve some of the problems we have with this movie to give it that extra breathing room to give it that extra runtime and not expect it to be all in one go because like you said this is already kind of a long it's kind of a sprint if you watch the uh uh three hour version it it lingers on so much and that can seem exhausting but not in one hour spurts yeah definitely last uh easter egg i have the song that Daisy Domingue, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, sings when she plays the guitar is an Australian folk song called Jim Jones at Botany Bay. I don't have a clip for you. I don't want to get uh, copyright striked, but it's right. uh, you, you can find um, a couple of different versions of it, including one that's not sung by her on YouTube. Um, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a folksy song. It's sort of like a uh, sea shanty, but yep. not exactly. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I got that. Yeah, I was like, uh, "Oh man, more sea shanty kind of sea shanties." Shanties are having a moment. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) even though this was in 2015. But yeah, okay. So I have a couple of Easter eggs for you. One is uh, that Zoe Bell. She is the actress who plays Six Horse Judy. She was Uma Thurman's stunt double in Kill Bill Volumes One and Two. She's won multiple awards for her stunts. And she's one of the many repeat actors that Tarantino chose for this film. I just think it's cool that she finally got to be in front of the camera as, you know, herself and not just um, doing the stunts for Ah, other people. But that's not the first time she's been a main character in Tarantino's movies. She's a main character in Death Proof. Right. Also with uh, with Kurt Russell, um, where she plays uh, like her and a bunch of other badass women. All all I think all of them, I think, are stunt double or stunt people um are in front of the camera front and center it's a yeah she's great i really like her a lot and i'm really glad that she got recognized and and that she's like in front of the camera for this one because she's she's very cool that's actually the one tarantino film i still haven't seen is death proof that's a good one it's um yeah i don't know why i haven't seen it yet i need to do it but um yeah it is cool and also i just think take a moment to like appreciate stunt doubles because um you know a lot of like for instance i know captain america has a stunt double that does a lot of his like epic jumps and twists and kicks and shit and it's uh you know an important part of the team so absolutely no i mean that's the thing i remember reading something about this it's like uh it talked about how like how important it is those details stand out right when when somebody's thrown against a wall or somebody's hit by a car or somebody falls out of a building or something like that if you notice a little like little tiny things in there or like them pulling back or not showing something it really brings you um really brings you out of the movie so having that uh like like having real people put their bodies on the line in like these interesting and kind of crazy ways 
really add so much to movies um, and they really aren't celebrated as much as they should be. Um, it's, it's pretty cool. One of the best things, uh, one of my favorite things at Disney World is the stunt show at, at the uh, Hollywood Studios. Yeah. Uh, where they go, they show all the different ways they do different stunts. They have cars driving backwards, people jumping off of buildings. Uh, this woman drives a uh, motorcycle through a bunch of flames and then she catches on fire and they have to put her out. Oh, it's so cool. It's like, it's the coolest thing ever. I've seen that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely got to appreciate the stunt doubles. Uh, another thing, I found this on Wikipedia. They call it the antique guitar incident. <gasps> the guitar destroyed by uh, Kurt Russell's character was not a prop, but an antique 1870s Martin guitar lent by the Martin Guitar Museum. According to sound producer Mark Ulano, the guitar was supposed to have been switched with a copy to be destroyed, but that was not communicated to Kurt Russell. Everyone on the set was pretty freaked out at the guitar's <laughs> destruction, and Lee's reaction was genuine, uh, though Tarantino was in the corner of the room with a funny curl on his lip because he got something out of the performance. And it, it is an interesting reaction uh, that she has when she sees him crush the guitar, uh, it, it does kind of stand out. And, and when you know the backstory behind it, it, it comes across as really authentic. Museum director Dick Boak said that the museum was not told that the script included a scene that called for a guitar being smashed, <laughs> and they determined that it was irreparable. The insurance remunerated the purchase value of the guitar. As a result of the incident, the museum no longer lends props to film <laughs> awesome that's Which, so I don't funny know, I, maybe if you're a guitar aficionado you can be like oh wow that's an 1870s martin wow but it seems like such an unnecessary thing to do especially if you're gonna destroy it yeah oh, like man. i don't know i guess like i guess somebody might recognize that that's an authentic guitar but like it looks just like any other guitar to me right you know? if anything it, it looks like it's in better shape than the rest of the stuff in the haberdashery yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, it, it shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know why it mattered, but it, that I think it's a hilarious like <laughs> Easter egg. Um, I just think I think it's yeah. so funny about like uh, not funny, but I think it's so interesting about how like old things get old, right? Like something must something gets old only by not being destroyed or not being lost, right? right. And so this thing survived from the 1870s and was old, and this is its end. The fate of this guitar was to be destroyed for a movie, right? Which is kind of cool, right? Maybe yeah. that's like if you could, if you have to decide how to go out, you know, that's kind of a cool way to go out as a if, guitar. If you're the museum director Dick Boak, at the very least, the destruction of this historical guitar is now documented and yeah. for everyone to witness, as yep. opposed to just like having it fall off of a truck or something. Yeah, and exactly. Losing it that way, so. Of all the ways for it to go, this isn't the worst. Uh, but it won't <laughs> happen not. again, apparently, since they're not going to lend anymore to film production. <laughs> Probably for a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my last Easter egg is one that I came up with, but uh, I noticed that Tim Roth spends a significant portion of this film dying from a gunshot wound, much like he did in Reservoir Dogs. Uh. Like, remember when you did that in Reservoir Dogs, Tim Roth? <laughs> I need you to do it again. You say he's being to... typecast as guy who's been shot in the stomach. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and just like writhing in pain on the ground. Which that was nobody, such a yeah. that was such a nobody dark dies outcome. like Tim, like Tim Roth. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, it's such a dark like way to look at his own demise where he was like, you can take my buddy and sell me for the 12,000. Like he was literally like negotiating knowing that he was going to die. Uh, yeah. I guess they all kind of were in that situation. But anyways, uh, what about quotable moments? You got any quotes for us, Joey? I got a couple, uh, but they're, they're, they're related. So I'm going to play both of them. Personally, as in Dear Major Warren? No, personally, as in Dear Marquis. Dear Marquis, Abraham Lincoln, the President of the United States of America. Yes. May I say it? No, you may not. But the way John tells it, you weren't just some random nigger soldier picked from a pile of letters. The way John tells it, y'all had a correspondence. Yes. Okay, you get the idea. So. Um, both of these quotes are emblematic of several things of, of, of the way the dialogue is in this movie, which is that it is very repetitive. There's a lot of things that they say, of characters say over and over and over again, over and over and over again, over and over and over again. Sometimes it's funny, you know, and there's certain poetic nature to it. Again, T Tarantino's dialogue is, is flowery and kind of elevated, which makes it entertaining to listen to. And even in that, that Abraham Lincoln thing, you can tell that Mannix is doing it on purpose, trying to, trying to goad uh marcus warren into uh kind of revealing his secrets or whatever um even though marcus only ever says yes to his questions basically um but it's uh what is interesting about this i think is first of all like it drags out the movie and it helps kind of build that tension makes it feel longer uh but it's also kind of realistic and that's one of the things i really like about tarantino's uh dialogue is that it is elevated it is flowery but it also has these elements of real human conversation people misunderstand each other people mishear things people repeat things over and over again because that's how people actually talk and like there's a way to do that right and there's a way to do that wrong and i think he does such a good job with it in both of these instances i think they're it's very interesting even if it is sometimes annoying um to like i get it okay i understand what's happening you don't have to say it eight times but it's still like <laughs> it's still like there's a greater purpose to that and i think um one of the elements i think that's that's so good about his dialogue is the fact that it's modeled on real human like behavior real human um talking and uh, and then built up to be something greater no i totally agree um especially on the first viewing of this movie i feel like it's not quite as exhausting because every like new conversation it is an opportunity to take in some new information that could give you more insight as to where the plot is going versus when you watch it again you're like oh this again <laughs> i already know that about the letter um which i think i don't know I, I i hate saying this because like 
you can never like totally erase your memory of a movie and truly watch it for the first time again. But I do feel like the the best viewing of this movie was the first viewing because mm-hmm. it relies so much on obscuring what's really going on and the intrigue and the mystery. That is such a potent force. The first viewing, um, I feel like it's it's tough to recreate when it, like it's fun to be like, oh look, they were setting that up. Oh look, that that really holds water. But I don't know if that is quite as satisfying as not knowing hmm. yeah i don't know because of watching it again i had not i don't remember a lot of the details from it um when i watched it you know i guess i i think i watched it two or three times after it came out but i hadn't remember a lot of the details so watching it again this time there's a lot of stuff that i had forgotten that kind of came back up and but i knew generally what the story was and i knew generally what was going to happen so I was, I was trying to pick up on those um on those little details um which i think was I think it was satisfying as a movie watching experience, but again, it's like, I know what's going to happen and it's, and so whereas when you're saying, when you watch it for the first time, you're like, well, I have no idea what's going to happen. You know, this is something totally new. I don't yeah. understand. I don't know. I don't know what is, what these characters are capable of or what's, what the twist is going to be or anything. So, well, for me, it's like impossible for me to forget that Channing Tatum is under the floor. Just like yeah. it's, it's impossible to forget how uncut gems ends, you know, where it's like that initial viewing, just, you're like, what? And, and uh, you can't put the, uh, toothpaste back in the tube right uh it it, after you've seen that it's like okay i know that's gonna happen and i think that that's such an explosive reveal but uh but i don't know it's still worth a rewatch for sure i'm not trying to dissuade people from that okay joey well i think that's gonna wrap up our conversation on the hateful eight as we do at the end of all our episodes where we'll deliver our ratings joey what rating do you want to give the hateful eight i give this movie um, an abacus to more accurately count the number of characters in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I give this movie a noose. Just a noose. Ooh, to spooky. Fit the, fit the motif. Okay. Uh, Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? The next movie we're doing, the next movie we're doing is The End of the Tour, which is a biopic about David Foster Wallace. Yes, I'm excited. I, I've heard some of his speeches, heard some of the things he's said, but I don't really know that much about David Foster Wallace, so this will be interesting. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you listen to us, make sure you leave us a review because it really does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat or send us an email, affablechat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel. It's called Affable Chat, where we post things that aren't necessarily about movies. So check it out, including stream highlight highlights, uh, which you are about to get into. Yes, yes. <laughs> like Joey is, yeah, like Joey says, uh, Apple Chat is live on Tuesday nights, 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Affable Chat. And uh, sometimes we take highlights from the stream and upload them to our YouTube channel. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode for affable chat i'm benjamin and i'm joey thanks for listening